Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with David Ochoa, who's platform coordinator at Open Targets. If you aren't familiar with Open Targets, it's, in my opinion, one of the most innovative pre-competitive models in the world that brings together academic research, public data sets, industry researchers, and really kind of strikes at the heart of how genetics can help drug discovery be more effective. We're going to talk about some of the challenges, but also the opportunities that good high quality genomic data bring to drug discovery. So David, I'm so excited to have you today and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me in the show. Thank you, Patrick. And Sinet Genetics, of course. Yeah, my pleasure. I was wondering maybe if we could start, I gave a very high level explanation of open targets, but I'd love to hear from you, the origins of the Institute, the program, how it came about. As I said before, I think it's a very unique model that uh, many around the world are already learning from or will in the future. So maybe you could talk a little bit about open targets and its purpose. Yeah, so open targets started nine years ago, which is before my time. And it was mostly Janet Thornton, which was Emboli BI director at that time, Mike Stratton, Welcome Sound Institute director, Patrick Valance, who was the president of pharmaceuticals and R&D in GSK at that time. And they were realizing that advances in genomics were leading to, to a very rapid increase in the viability of data that could be used to nominate new drug targets. And that was providing at that time, I think, an enormous opportunity, but they also were of the risks and, and the challenges that this was bringing. So I think the challenge at that time, it was probably not that different to the challenges today, which is how we translate all this knowledge and data into new medicines. And although I think they were very visionary on identifying that need, I think where they really cracked the problem was by realizing that actually because it's so early in discovery, it's a space in which you will have this kind of pre-competitive collaboration between academia and industry. So they identified that combining academic institutions and Bolivia's Sanger Institute at the time, together with the experience and expertise of GSK or under scientists, that's something that they could keep in a public domain, in a pre-competitive environment, just because the concerns from intellectual property are not that high at that stage. And that was nine years ago. So as today, now Open Diet has become the same two academic institutions. And now we are five pharmaceutical companies, generally big pharma. And we all come together to try to systematically identify and prioritize drug targets. The focus at the moment is generally on three therapeutic areas, oncology, neurodegeneration, and immunology. And what we produce for the community is data and resources that can assist in the identification of targets. So the model allows for this type of cross-collaboration between academic and industry. And the way to, to make that happen is that for every project that happens within open targets, there is always interaction and synergy between all the partners. And, and at the end, is most of the efforts are multidisciplinary and require expertises that vary from the most like drug discovery scientists to the more like human genetics, statistical genetics, but also a lot of computational biology, technical work that needs to happen in this space. So the kinds of data sets that you're mainly working with, maybe you could give a little bit of a 30,000 foot view or a tour of the kinds of data sets that help. And I think they'll probably be different in oncology and neurodegeneration, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what those data sets are that are most useful for solving this, I guess, target validation problem. Is that the one you most think about or target discovery in the first place? Yeah, generally we are more on the target discovery side of things. When we put data sets together, it's not 
just about generating the data. It's also about what is the question that this data allow us to answer. So we try to identify what are the type of questions that attract discovery scientists will have. So how can we can influence that decision making? And with time, like we kept realizing that that is a very complex landscape, right? And everyone probably understand that the pharmaceutical effort by our endeavor is not simple, right? If a drug takes 15 years to get an approval, it's not because the process is slow. It's just because there is so much complexity into everything. So from our perspective on the target identification, like there are multiple layers that we always try to get data for. So the first and more obvious is always the causality, right? Is this gene or protein causal for this disease? And genetics has a lot to say on that. But there is a lot more that you can do, like genetics can inform about target safety. And there's been like very good pieces coming out in Nature Reviews Drug Discovery from Kevin Cars and everything. And everyone on this team more recently, there is a lot that you can do from genetics on the direction of effect, how to inform the intervention. So how the modulation of the gene needs to happen. Uh, do I need an inhibitor? Do I need an activator or an agonist? So there is a lot about the tractability of the molecule that genetics can inform, the pathways or the process. Sometimes we don't want to target a gene or a protein. It's just that we want to downregulate, upregulate a biological process. And that might be formed by a combination of genes or proteins, or sometimes the genetically pinpointed evidence is not the best possible target. It's the interacting protein. So there is a lot on this kind of informing decision-making. So one of the aspects as well is, are you attacking the right tissue, the right cell type? So information genetics can tell you about that. So there is a huge amount of tissue-specific or cell type-specific data being generated, like in the form of single-cell transcriptomics, proteomics, UTLs, how you can use that. As you see, like there is a bit about the data, like what is the best data, but then it's what kind of questions you can formulate. And one single piece of data, UK Biobank data sets, can be used to formulate very different questions. What's the, I guess, scope of the heterogeneity of data do you have? Do you do imaging and single cell RNA and genomics? Or maybe if we looked at neurodegeneration, for example, you could probably go incredibly deep in the complexity of different data sets, but you've got to probably trade off at some point of, do I spend that incremental budget on acquiring more public human GWAS data sets and making sense of them? Or do I go after imaging or single cell data sets? How do you think about that matrix, I guess, of a number of data sets and heterogeneity of different ones with respect to these different questions you're trying to answer? Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting question, right? And it goes a lot about where we can generate more value, right? Like what is the next data set? I think that it, these kind of prioritizations happen with all our partners. And so there is a lot of input into what every single one of them believe is the next big thing. And sometimes there is agreement and sometimes they yeah. have very different takes on what is important and what's not. So just to tell that there is probably not right and wrong on this. But in terms of heterogeneity of data, so we have a strong take on human disease genetics, right? So we have dedicated tool called the Open Targets Genetics, which focuses on the common disease problem. So there is a lot that we do on GWAS plus functional genomics in the form of molecular QTL, creatinine intervals, like everything that can inform about causality of non-coding variants. That is our main source of common disease evidence. 
We have also been collecting things that are intermediate between common and rare, things like the burden test results from AstraZeneca, Regeneron, GeneBus, different sources that kind of gives you that gene-level information about accumulation of rare variants. And we collate multiple sources that focus on rare diseases like ClinBars, ClinGen, Sorfanet, PanelApp, and I'm sure I will forget some of them. So uh, definitely going more on the rare disease space. That's about germline variation. We also try to cover part of the somatic variation, mostly identifying cancer driver genes through either sequencing methods, so in the form of Intogen, for example, which has a toolkit of different cancer driver methods that try to identify cancer driver genes on different cohorts like the CEA or the Peacock cohort. And also curation that happens, for example, in the cancer hallmarks from Cosmic, uh, which is part of the Wellcome Sanger Institute. So more recently, we have also been expanding our coverage of perturbation assays, so CRISPR screenings, like, for example, by uh, integrating the CRISPR brain resource, which is part of UCSF. So we can probably block germline variation, somatic variation, perturbation analysis, and then on top of that, also genetics on animal models. So INPCs as a consortium like generates a lot of knockout data and, and they also annotate it and curate. There is a massive effort to curate like the mouse phenotypes, which we can also map to human phenotypes. And that can be very informative for different questions, like not just for causality, but also how the latent use is going to be to modulate this gene on mice and how we can inform safety from that data. You mentioned the, I think, five pharma partners. So I think they'd be Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, GSK, Pfizer, Sanofi. Is that right? Those are the at least yes. partners. With that kind of pre-competitive consortium approach, how do you manage that challenge that you identified, which is there are probably some things that everybody agrees we should focus on amassing you know, these kind of data sets or being able to answer these kind of questions. But every partner has some aspect of their clinical development approach that might be a little bit different. What does that process look like? Do you have a steering board that gets together regularly and hashes out the priorities for the year or for the next couple of years? I'm really interested in how you manage. I think one of the values of the pre-competitive approach is it's a massive time saver and money saver for everybody involved if you can get together actually and pool those resources, but it relies on coordination and being able to agree on at least 80% of things probably. So I'm interested in how that process works. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much as you described, right? Like you need teams that work across all the levels of the organization that take the decision making in a collective way. And we have a governance board which oversees all the activities of the consortium and validates that all the high level decisions are taken in the right direction. But there is also a scientific leadership team that focuses on what are the scientific directions. And then for all the individual projects, whether they are more research-oriented, like data generation or asking particular questions, it is a team that is assembled with experts in every partner that know the most about that particular problem. And that also involves the services like the Open Targets platform and Open Targets Genetics. That makes sense. I mentioned how you came into Open Targets and into the role. Maybe you could tell people a little bit about your career trajectory and, and how you found your way into this unique organization. Yeah, so it's very difficult to explain these things usually, right? Like uh, you see your career as a succession of accidents that lead you to where you are at the moment. And then you, you try to push yourself to retrospect and say, oh, everything made sense. So 
if I have to find a common theme of everything that I've done is that I was always very puzzled by this kind of complex biology problems and things that are not like true or false, but are 80% true and 20% of exceptions were actually. And biology is full of that, absolutely, in every single level. And during my PhD back in Madrid, I was looking at protein-protein interactions and how to predict them using coevolution. And that's a very interesting topic that has been almost like the grounding for a lot of the developments that have happened in things like AlphaFold or coevolution between different residues in the proteins is something that is it can really inform about how structures are built. Yeah, later on, I came to Cambridge, to the UK, and I joined Pedro Beltrao's lab where I was looking at mostly at phosphoproteomics, so how to interpret the functional landscape of the human phosphoproteome in a very general term. So, and for your audience, that probably is more familiar with genes and PTMs and post-translational modifications, including phosphorylation. You can interpret it as variation that happens at the protein level. So it's basically something that happens in a transient way that can happen or cannot happen. And it's in the whole continuous range. But in a way, it's like variation that happens in vivo and it has some consequences. So there is a lot that translate to how variant effect predictions happen. So for us, the take there was about how to interpret when those PTMs, those phosphorylations happened, how that impacts into the phenotype and how it causes disease and in general impacts human life. And that kind of led me to the disease landscape. And then I started in open diets where so far I've been trying to help to coordinate the platforms, the OpenTarius platform, OpenTarius genetics, and also helping to shape the scientific direction of some of our informatics activities. You mentioned AlphaFold, actually, and I thought we're recording this about two days after they announced the new model. I don't know if you had a chance to read the paper yet or at least skim it. I haven't, so I'm a, I'm a blank slate on this one, but I'm curious if you have any reactions to the new model or paper and also how it is or isn't relevant to the work that you all do, because it has been an incredible leap forward, at least the first version of it. So yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the new development. Yeah, I only had the opportunity to skim very quickly through it and forward through it. But I think it is very interesting. So this manuscript is written by both DeepMind and Isomorphic Labs, which is the spin-off of DeepMind that focuses on drug discovery. And I think one of the take-home messages that I got from that paper is that they are specializing a lot better in these protein small molecule binding predictions. And it's something that other people have tried beyond DeepMind, but I think the claim that they had here is that they are significantly improving that to RMSDs that are close to 70%. I think all the benchmarks that they had were close to 30, 40%. So it does feel like a big thing. It's a very interesting topic. It's definitely going to have some impact, particularly on the small molecule development. But I think something that we need to keep in mind is that the small molecules keep being the most important modality, but they are not the only ones. So I think in that sense, there is a lot of problems that still need to be solved. Yeah, that's a great point. I was curious across the range of diseases and targets that you go after. Do you have a sense of how many of those are addressable by small molecules, biologics, some of the more novel gene editing or gene therapy approaches? Are there big swaths of the targets that you all are generating that actually aren't yet druggable? So that's the challenge to solve, or what does that mix look like? Yeah, I think in these two interesting problems, right? One is, what is our understanding of the modulation of all possible targets? 
And I think if we just restrict to protein coding genes, which is the simplest problem, the Illuminating Dragable Genome Consortium has a good classification about how different targets are understood. They call it like the tickling when you have clinical precedence, the bio when you have biological precedence, like genetics. And they, they have this space of the T-dark, which is like the dark targets, the ones that we haven't really know exactly what they do or what they could represent as potential drug targets. So that's one space. And I think on that frame, I think we are close to know about phenotypically what's the impact of perhaps 13, 14,000 protein coding genes, something like that. It is either GWAS evidence or rare genetics or something. And perhaps that kind of remaining 6,000 is the ones that we phenotypically we don't know that much. And I think the third question you were posing is more about the intervention, right? The, the drug modalities. Like once we know about all these targets, what is the best modality, the best way to modulate them? And what is our experience? Like this? So for example, I was mentioning before, like small molecules are not as important as they were. So I think for the first time last year, small molecules were not the most common modality. I mean, they are still the most common modality, sorry, but it's less than half of the approved drugs. And as you know, like we've been working on this space about looking at the approvals recently. What, how does the last decade of approvals looks like? And we've been looking at what are the different modalities, how the genetic evidence that we have support those drugs. And what we found, and it's something that we have been reporting, is that two-thirds of drug approvals are supported by human genetics. And it's something that we found is more or less consistent throughout the last decade. To answer your question, like for the different modalities, like that is increasing the complexity. There is more antisensor oligonucleotides coming on. And if you look at the whole clinical pipeline, there are other modalities like degraders, things like keep increasing the, the way that people try to modulate targets. I would actually love if we could go through that paper in a little bit more detail. We'll put a link to the paper and a link to your tweet thread in the show notes, but maybe you could give a a little bit of an overview of what you were looking for and what you found. We were talking before we started recording that I think certainly people who listen to this show know the headline numbers that genetics is an important factor in helping to predict drug success or genetic evidence behind a target is a really helpful indicator of likelihood of success or failure in clinical trials. And there's been a lot of work over the past couple of years, and including a very recent refining of the estimates from Matthew Nelson and a couple of other authors. But I think you all have done a really interesting retrospective analysis that goes into that question in, in a lot of detail to try to pick out not just the headline numbers, but what are the more specific drivers of types of genetic evidence. And, and I think some non-obvious factors that emerged from the analysis. So it'd be great if you could give a little bit of an overview of that work that you did and what you found. Yeah, so this work started last year when we first looked at 2021 FDA approvals, and we were trying to look at what was the genetic support for those approvals. And when we say genetic support, it's generally that you find genetic evidence that connects the on-target pharmacological molecule with the indication of interest. So to do that, we leverage the information that we have in the Open Diets platform that, as I described before, tries to cover common disease genetics, rare disease genetics, and also somatic evidence, and try to find how often we do find a connection between the human target and the indication. 
And when we tried to do it in the first place, like we tried fully systematic and the numbers were not that great. Like we realized, okay, yeah, the coverage doesn't seem that great. And we started looking at all the cases one by one where actually we were not getting them. We were surprised by the fact that many of the approvals for which we apparently didn't have any genetic evidence, once you start digging into them, there was something that was kind of pointing to that evidence. And that kind of tell us that this systematic approach is not fully working. So we said, okay, we need to go through everything. And we did first for 2021, and there were 50 approvals that year. And that's where we got the, like the two-thirds figure. Just to give you an example of the kind of things that you find, as things that you don't get systematically, like there were things like, when the genetic evidence is not for the target of interest, but it's for a closely interacting protein. So something that is physically interacting and it has like a high degree of confidence based on protein-protein interaction screenings. And another thing that we saw happen very often is that you do have genetic evidence, but the trait for which you have it is not exactly the same as the indication of the drug. You can build a very, very clear link between the two. So I can give you an example, like for example, we got evidence for glucosuria, which is a trait that we can associate with chronic kidney disease. And this kind of linkage, unless you are an expert on the field or you look at it one by one, is for us, it wasn't trivial to get that systematically. And that's why we realized, okay, our numbers are not that great. The moment we started doing one by one and looking specifically for every possible genetic evidence, then we started realizing, okay, there is a lot more than what we expected. That sounds to me like that example you provided was a case maybe where the genetics had a clear link to um, like an endophenotype or some kind of intermediate phenotype where maybe you didn't have enough large-scale linked genetics and medical record data sets to pick out the link directly. Was that a big theme of links to some of the maybe more cellular phenotypes, but then you could ladder it up to the disease? Were there other big themes besides that as an area where you still need to have the domain knowledge to go in and, and look, but you don't have to look too hard to see the, the arrows pointing towards the target? Yeah, that was one of the apparent things, like definitely and the phenotypes in the case of the protein interactions as well. Like I think each of them covered like roughly 20% extra evidence. But we still were kind of surprised, right? Like we didn't know like is 2021 a good representation of this problem. And that was part of the feedback from the community. When we published this brief, like we said, like some of the people were saying, okay, yeah, this is great, but is this generalizable? Is it something that we can apply to other years? And then while we had to do and Pauline in the group, what she did is to look at 10 years, basically. It was a lot of work going one by one, every single drug approved during the last 10 years and trying to find the evidence. And the numbers are very similar, are 60-something percent. doesn't reach the two-thirds, but it's a very, very similar number. The problems are very similar to the ones on 2021. What we started seeing is that sometimes the genetic evidence shows up only after the fact that you have the approval. And that's also very reassuring in many aspects because it kind of tells you that whatever the clinical trial was doing, either they had privileged data that other people didn't have, or they kind of knew the biology and they were going after a hypothesis that later on, maybe a UK Bank study, a GWA study, something up. different yeah. supported that hypothesis. And, and that has happened, I think, very often, most recently now with the increase of GWAS studies. And it also speaks very well about the regulatory process, right? Because it tells you that, well, actually, the whole clinical development process worked as expected. And we can validate that after the fact. 
Do you have a sense of how many of the ones with genetic evidence were like a smoking gun one in the sense that it would have jumped off the page and you didn't need to have any significant clinical expertise versus ones that were maybe a level below the surface? The reason why I ask is I'm curious how close or far we are from like a genome first approach to drug and target discovery. But it sounds like from what you're saying that the real deep clinical expertise in one of these areas is still a really important ingredient. You couldn't just crank out targets based on genetic and medical record data. You really do need to understand the biology in some fundamental level. I'm curious for what percentage of cases, even if you could just ballpark it, did you feel like there was a screaming link there that would have jumped out in like a VWAS study or something? It's very hard to make a number out of this, but I think what you're saying about the context is quite right. We have talked with experts in some of our partners and saying like, we could come with a GWAS, get the best possible eat, very significant, very clear, go to the therapy area, talk to the experts. And at the end of the day, it's about convincing them that that's a case. And if it has no connection with any prior knowledge of the biology of that disease, it's going to be very hard to start a drug discovery program. So I think sometimes it's about having a strong case, but also about contextualizing it with everything that is known about that disease. And I think it's a game that internally in many companies that needs to happen anyway. Is there anything you've learned from the way that your different pharma partners structure themselves to try to solve this problem? Because I know that some companies have basically like cross-cutting genetics or precision medicine teams that spend a lot of time trying to answer questions like this and and looking at UK Biobank, obviously people like Regeneron or AstraZeneca who may have large in-house data sets work on those data sets, whereas others have maybe a more distributed approach where geneticists are embedded within some of the therapy area teams. And I think in practice, you probably get a mixture of both, but I'm curious whether you've learned from any other groups you work with about those different structures, what trade-offs you get from having a central genetics team versus embedding genetics in the organization in some way, for example, as two different approaches to it. On my personal experience, honey, interacting with with many of them, I think every big pharma has a strong take on human genetics these days, right? So all of them have a department. Some of them are more publicly advertising it, like, as you said, like AstraZeneca or Regeneron are good examples. And some others like GSK have been doing this for a very long time, and they have very strong collaborations, 23andMe and others for a very long time. And perhaps they haven't been so vocal or you don't see that many papers coming out of them, but they do have a very, very strong take on this. So in that sense, I think from the human genetics perspective, I think the majority of big pharmas are well positioned. They just have different minor tweaks on how they look at this, how much strong they are on computational biology, so how much it's about getting the latest data set and processing it versus integrating more pieces of information. So I think that there is more degree of variation on that. I think it's probably in the new areas where perhaps you see more differences like approaches, new approaches, probably ML, AI in general, how they are facing that challenge, how many of them are really doing it in-house versus how many do it through collaboration or partnership with other companies. That's where you perhaps see more differences these days. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any, maybe one or two stories or wins or big outcomes that you remember from the past couple of years that you've been working that have come out of uh, all the hard work you all have done to bring this group together and generate all these interesting platforms and data sets? 
there is a lot being generated, right, in OpenDiet. So I tend to talk a lot about the informatics sites or the processing of publicly available information, but there is a lot of experimental work going on and a lot of data sets being generated. But there's been uh, quite a lot happening on the synthetic lethality space, like CRISPR screenings. There was a big nature paper two, three years ago from OpenDiet that nominated the Werner Helicase as a synthetic lethal for microsatellite instable cancer. So the kind of like the research program speaks by itself. So there's constant drop of open diets papers coming out of the pipeline. And I think in the informatics side, it's basically being very responsive, right? The new data is generated all the time. The challenges for R are the same as the challenges of the community. So listening to experts in every single field and trying to put that into context. We have put a lot of effort into redeveloping all our tools and resources and services to make sure that we satisfy as many people as possible. And, and I think uh, things like the OpenTIS platform, I think for people who are on top of it and familiar with it, they probably appreciate how fast it's changing and evolving and potentially helping to improve the decision-making of everyone, not just our partners, but also everyone in the drug discovery community that we know many people beyond the partnership are using our tools. Yeah, Open Targets as part of EMBL. It's, EMBL itself is quite a unique organization as well. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. You get a diplomatic passport and some other interesting things. I could be repeating something that's totally apocryphal, but I've been told that the little EMBL slice of land in uh, Cambridge or just outside of Cambridge is kind of EU territory, actually, and your your diplomats and residents. Is that right? Or am I repeating something? I don't know how much of all these stories are true, but definitely, yeah, EMBOL is a very particular organization, especially for the people listening from the US. Might sound a bit strange. Yeah. But uh, EMBOL is funded by different member states. Not all of them are European. Some of them are like Australia is a member state, for example. Oh, interesting. And the idea, again, is like they all come together to create this pan-European organization of research. There are different sites across the European land, in a way, like the headquarters are in Heidelberg in Germany. And it has a very rigid structure in the sense that like the employees, for example, form part of the organization for a maximum of nine years. So the intention is that talent across all member states go to Emble, they train themselves, they develop, and then they can come back to the member states and give back to the scientific community of those countries. Does the nine-year rule apply for you? You're getting close yes. to five years, right? Yeah, yeah, it applies to everyone. I mean, there are some cases in which they can make exceptions if they consider that the contribution of someone cannot be replaced. But uh, yeah, it applies to everyone in the organization, right. all the way to the director general. Yeah. So how far into the nine years are you right now? I'm halfway. Yeah, so I was going to close out with some of your thoughts on the future. So over the next four or five years, what are some of the big areas that you're going to be most focused on? Yeah, so we're very excited about revamping the open targets genetics. So our take on common disease genetics, like there was a first pass that was almost like a production prototype that has been very successful, we believe. Like the community had speak very well of it and but we identify like it's something that is still a bit clunky in the sense that it's not something we can refresh very quickly and it's one of the strong takes we want to we embark on and we know there's a lot of data that is going to be generated we want to be very quick and fast on integrating that information 
And on top of that, I think it's about the kind of questions that we can ask by putting all GWAS information together. We want to be able to answer questions that cannot be answered by asking all the individual parts, like by putting all together, what else we can learn. And it's very unlikely that we have a world biobank anytime soon, right? So to get all possible knowledge, we are always going to have to integrate the different biobanks and what can we learn from a biobank that is not in the other, right? And we need to be able to make that kind of question. See if there is more African genomes coming in. What can we learn from the African genetic diversity that we haven't learned from Europeans, for example, right? So this kind of integration is going to be quite critical, we believe. And at the same time, like all these layers of information, like single cell, the QTLs, can we, how fast we can integrate them, co-localize them, get all these pipelines ready and set up so that we learn more about human genetics. There are a lot of open questions, right? Do we have enough targets? Do we have more targets than the ones that we can assimilate? So do we need to generate more negative data? That's probably something interesting that we want to focus and we want to learn more about it. Can we learn about the failures, not just about the successes? What do we know about trials that stopped? What do we know about trials that completed but actually didn't work out? Can we inform like drug discovery in that way? And I think from the wealth of naturally occurring variation, it is probably new frontiers that we need to interrogate. Like we know about the biobank, so we have FinGen, 10% of the Finnish population, UK biobank, roughly 10% of the UK population. Will going to the 100% give us one order of magnitude more findings? It's hard to know, but it's unlikely to be the case. So in that sense, like that's our limit, right? With the human population, that's the limit of how much we can learn from germline variation. But where can we find other sources of variation? And uh, one of them could be somatic variation. So we know that within one individual, there is a great amount of variation happening throughout the life. So it's a potential niche of protective variants that could be leveraged to identify new targets that could be used for drug discovery. And ultimately, it doesn't need to be naturally occurring variation, right? We have the tools to do perturbations. And I think people testing our scanning, uh, more CRISPR skinning, Welcome Sangre Institute, one of our partners, has a very, very strong take on this. There is a new department focused purely on this. And it's something that it can be a very, very useful tool to understand how variation affects phenotypes. In my PhD, dipped my toe a little bit in the mutational variant effect interpretation kind of uh, field. We were trying to understand some non-coding drivers and made some progress. Still very challenging to get these massively parallel reporter assays at the time. They were called, I I don't know, I think the plethora of acronyms has uh, increased, but it's an area that I'm really interested and excited about because exactly as you said, the amount of genetic variation that we can see naturally is capped at around 7 billion people on earth, right? Maybe we sequence the tree of life and we start to see some evolutionary data that's helpful to some extent, but the opportunity to mutate every base in the genome in relevant organoids or cell models is going to be really powerful and interesting. And it's going to break through that 7 billion barrier at some point and yield some really useful information. I wanted to a quick follow up on because I can't help myself on the clinical trial stopping point. You published a a meta archive preprint around this not too long ago. And I was curious what 
A, what you learned from that, why when trials fail or, or halt early, what some of the reasons for that are. And I was also curious about getting your hands on the data sets in the first place. I think companies are, for obvious reasons, fairly protective of that data. Was it difficult to get data sets in the first place? And then also, what did you learn from it? So what we tried to do in this study was to look at clinical trials that stop early. And those are roughly like only 10% of all clinical trials. And all this information is publicly available. So the clinicaltrials.gov is a resource. The FDA has strict rules about submissions to clinicaltrials.gov. So it ensures that clinical trials are submitted there. And as part of that submission, there's a requirement to report when you stop a clinical trial what was the reason? And that is like a free text. It's just like a, a few characters long. It doesn't need to right. be very long, but the submitters need to provide a reason. And of course, it's free text, so it's very anarchic. So what we tried to do on this study was, okay, let's train an NLP model that tries to classify these reasons. And there was some research from a preprint from British World and some others a few years back where we went through these reasons and they classified them manually. And at that time, I think it was roughly 2,000 clinical trials. But today we have like 30,000, all without a reason. So what we use is to use the manual curation that they took all the effort to, to go through that, with a classifier, and then apply it to the 30,000. We did the benchmark and we realized actually, yes, this works because at the end, the language that the people use is not that diverse. Uh, if something fails because of efficacy, there is only a few words that they end up using. Then we had 30,000 clinical trials that all stopped and we had the reason. And there's, that means approval is very easy, right? Either you're approved or not. But understanding why a clinical trial has stopped there are plenty different reasons why this might happen, like logistical resources. Someone in the study moved to a different country and the study stopped because of that. And of course, the more strong and obvious reasons like, oh, there was a safety concern, there was an efficacy problem, or there were reasons like, oh, COVID pandemic, right? There was the COVID pandemic, we had to stop this trial. That's it, period. So once we had this classification, then the question was, could we have predicted that something because of efficacy or safety, right? Was there any information that we had access that could have been used to anticipate that failure? So for that, we kind of did like the reverse of Matt Nelson's analysis. Instead of predicting clinical trial progression, can we predict failure? Yeah. And we found that those clinical trials that were stopped due to efficacy were depleted on genetic evidence. So in the first place, the hypothesis was not as strongly supported as those studies that didn't stop. Yeah, I was curious about, I think one of the biggest stopping reasons was insufficient enrollment, recruitment problems. I'm wondering where, if you could conjecture of what the link between genetic evidence and something like enrollment would be. So we found very little association, although there was a very weak association in some of those. We kind of interpreted like when they were forced to provide a reason, the submitters, probably they came out with something, but actually the decision was probably a complex decision. Right. So for example, when we when we look at COVID as a reason for stopping the trial, it was a perfectly odds ratio of one. Like it had absolutely no linkage to genetic evidence. And the way we interpret it is that COVID was not a complex reason for stopping. It was like there was COVID, there was this trial had to stop. It doesn't matter how strongly supported the therapeutic hypothesis was. We just had to. Yeah. Do it's almost like a control. 
right? It's a background control. That was our controller. But then all the other ones were kind of like a gradient of, okay, yes, insufficient enrollment, didn't have any depletion or just a little bit, but then efficacy was a very clear depletion. So that was the strongest depleted. Yeah. Yeah, and if it's a more mundane, I think one of the categories was business or administrative reason, we ran out of money, the PI moved, something like that. I suppose if there was a ton of conviction that it was an amazing target and drug to begin with because you had all this other evidence, then you might have figured out a way to solve that problem. But these things start to pile on top of one another. They've got If they've got to pick a reason, guarantee it captures the complexity. Yeah, interesting. I know we're close to running out of time here. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I think we covered a, a lot of ground. I just want to say thank you for uh, for sharing all of this. I think we covered two challenging papers, interesting papers, and uh, and a lot of work that you've done in a little less than an hour, which is amazing. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting us and for having us present in your podcast. I have right. to say that I'm a listener of the podcast. I usually listen to it when I go to sleep. I can't promise I'm awake after every episode, but I do my best. Oh, that's great. I don't know how to interpret the falling uh, <laughs> asleep. I have been told my voice is, uh, can be fairly monotonous. Do you have a favorite episode? Anyone that springs to mind? I think the episode 100 with Matt Hughes is great. I really like that one. Great. Obviously, he's a very important person to me. He was my PhD supervisor and a, I think an incredible scientist, also a really great person. And he's leading the Sanger Institute now, so I think they're in very good hands with him. Well, great. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. I remember you mentioned by email that you were a listener to the show, so that's awesome. And we reached out to you after we saw your recent paper. So thanks again for doing it. And everybody, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. If you're a listener and you're like David and you could be a guest, then uh, reach out to us. We really want to hear from you. Whenever people ask about podcasting, I just say the most important rule is you find great guests and the rest takes care of itself. So um, thank you again, David. And thanks everybody for listening. As always, if you like the episode, we will really appreciate it if you share it with a friend, leave us a review on your favorite podcast episode, and you can email us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. 